Shalom. All righty. Hey, uh, I had an interesting day. I would say we are all here mutually to learn. I, I had a couple people, Erica, Taylor in particular. Taylor, where are you from? Seacoast, where are you at? Where, okay. She was teaching me some of the new lingo that students use today. And here's the reason why. Uh, where's Three Crosses at? So my, my wife, there's Marilyn, there's Marilyn. Everyone say hi to Marilyn. So my wife and I would consider John and Marilyn Tunger some of our bestest friends. And Marilyn always says, LOL, as a, as a thing. And I heard that's kind of like a, a boomerish thing to say. And I, it got me interested in what are some of the things that teens say today that I was unaware of. I, I feel like I'm a generally pretty cool guy, um, but apparently not anymore. What does bussin' mean? <laughs> Hey, I just, I just want to like, here, let's do it this way. I'm going to use a term or a phrase, and you just kind of give me the yay or nay on if I'm using it the correct way. Sound good? I learned all of this about 6.15, so give me, give me some mercy. I like to refer to myself, <laughs> okay, would, would, would you say I'm, that guy's pretty riz? <laughs> no, no. Wait, well, how would you say, how would you say it? How, what? You have, wait, okay, wait, wait, wait. So you say, you have Riz. Listen, listen. So is it fair to, for me to refer to myself as the alligator Rizzard? Okay, okay. Okay, uh, I'm gonna use another sentence. You tell me yay or nay. Uh, this show, the new Star Wars is pretty mid. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh, that guy, that guy's giving. Like, he's putting off a certain vibe. Is that what it means? Like, so that guy's giving nice. Okay, uh, rid riddle, riddle me this. Can I say with confidence, this burger slaps? Okay, all right. Uh, no, no. I'm concerned to try any others. No, I haven't, I haven't. The, the one, I would say the one that's, uh, I learned, I learned a few variations of the he's giving one, but uh, I would just say at this point, this night is going to be bussin'. So let's go. Um, I'd like to thank Taylor and Eric. What's that? that is that pizza? That pita's, pizza slaps. Okay. Uh, what? No crumbs? What? What? I ate that? I left no crumbs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Johnny, don't leave no crumbs. Okay. All right. Listen, listen. Uh, I got to hurry now because my iPad's at 9%. So I got to get this whole thing done before I die. All right. Can uh, not... I'm dead? Do you, okay, okay. <laughs> all right, all right, kidding, kidding. You guys slay me. Okay, all right. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know if this will work for my iPad. No. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Um, all right, all right, let me do this. Let me pray. Uh, that's a language I do speak. Okay. 
God, we're so thankful for the gift of laughter and for the ability even to have fun today. Lord, we're thankful that you are not the enemy of fun. You're the author of it. And God, you are a God of great joy. And so even, Lord, tonight as we talk about sin, Lord, that needs to always be put in picture with the entirety of your character, that you are a holy God, a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God, but a God who is just and a God who punishes every single sin. There are many in here, God, that don't even really understand necessarily what that term means or how to define it. There might be a little bit of uneasiness even in hearing that word. But Lord, we just pray, God, that you would move through your word tonight. I'm so thankful, Lord, for these students. I care about them deeply, as I know their churches and their counselors and pastors do. And so, Lord, tonight, would you do a great work in all of our hearts? We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. A couple years ago, I think it was maybe four years ago, I shared a story. Here's a big blade. I'm not much of a chef. But I want to tell you how... I think I used this maybe four years ago, the story, but it'll apply for tonight. I want to tell you how the native Inuits hunt. In the frozen tundra of northern Canada and Alaska, the native Inuits, they share their home with an apex predator. And they hunt this apex predator with the predator's weakness in mind. They share their home with the wolf. And what the native Inuits will do is they'll take a large blade like so, they'll dip it in blood and freeze it. They'll dip it in blood and refreeze it. And they'll do that seven times until around this blade, there is a large coat of fresh animal blood. They'll then take that blade and they'll stick it like this in the snow. And at night, the wolves will say, that's bussin'. And then they'll go and they'll smell it. No, nah, wrong term. Okay, anyways, I'm, I'm done with those. Okay, they'll smell that blood from miles away and then they'll rush to it in packs. They'll howl and they'll run and they'll gather there around a single blade and they'll begin to lick the frozen blood on the blade over and over and over and over again until after a moment, the blood that they are licking is no longer the frozen blood on the blade but the blood that they are now tasting is their own blood as they lacerate their tongue against the keen edge of the blade sticking up in the snow. Some of them know that they are destroying and killing themselves, but at this point, their appetite and their desire for blood is too strong and overpowers the common sense of ceasing from the activity and saving their own life. And in the morning, the native Inuits, I mean, the hunters are nothing fierce. They're old, old, old men. And they'll walk in the morning to the location of the blade, and there will be a pack of wolves dead around a single blade. The wolves value their lust and their appetites more than the preservation of life. They are irrational and their own desires cause them to be blind to the consequences of the actions that they are now indulging in. Perhaps there's no greater picture of sin than the story of how these Inuits hunt. Sin destroys us. We think we love it. We indulge in it. We blind ourselves to the reality of its consequences, and yet we go and do and do and do over and over and over again, not knowing that what we indulge in is destroying us. Tonight we're going to talk about sin, and even as I prayed, maybe this word is an uncomfortable word in and of itself. Maybe it causes uneasiness in your own heart. And maybe you dismiss this word as a religious word. Or perhaps, church student, you're so familiar with this term that you have never grasped the significance of your sin in your own life. 
I want to recap where we're at in Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 this evening. But in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood firm when all those around them were bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the man who had been charmed by the truth of who God is in chapter 2, and then once again wowed by God's power in chapter 3, he's still unchained or unchanged. And you saw that in the video, Nez. He seems to think that he's wanting to follow God, and then he goes back to his old ways. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has been blown away by Yahweh's power in interpreting dreams and delivering his servants from the blazing fire. He had proclaimed that Yahweh was the God of gods, but in chapter 4, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar is still the epitome of pride. And Daniel is going to plead with Nebuchadnezzar in this way in chapter 4, verse 27. It says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What is is Daniel asking Nebuchadnezzar to do? He's saying, and I'm telling you tonight through God's word, he's saying, break off from your sin. We're gonna look at Nebuchadnezzar's life tonight, not in regards to a case study, But as we look at Nebuchadnezzar's life, we're looking not through a window, but at a mirror. Because as we evaluate Nebuchadnezzar's life, we see a picture of our own sinful heart. And we're going to see that his brokenness and his depravity is just an expression of the brokenness and depravity in your life, in your life, and in my life. In Nebuchadnezzar's life, we see three realities about sin. Number one, if you're taking notes, sin is rebellion against God. The king had witnessed undeniable evidence and exposure to the supernatural work of God. He is familiar with the truth. He is knowledgeable about God's power. He has in the past acknowledged that God is the God of gods, but after these stirrings and these charmings of the gospel, he continues to revert back and refuses to, watch this, to live exclusively for God. Sin is rebellion. He turns his back on God. And maybe you've experienced in your own life what we see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. You have these moments where you feel that you you have this resolution to live for God. You want to live for him. You want to fight sin and proclaim the truth. But by the time you reach home, you are back to the same sin that days before you had promised to never revisit. Nebuchadnezzar is like us in this way. He's been stirred by the gospel, but he's never been changed. He turns his back on God, and he refuses to elevate God to God's proper position in his life. I want you to notice, in 227, Nebuchadnezzar had said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. He says in Daniel 3:28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. Nebuchadnezzar, and even sometimes you have to consider when you sing and ask the question, are you like Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar offered great worship with his lips, but it never translated to worship with his life. He said, your God is the God of gods. He says, your God is a revealer of mysteries. And then he said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. To bless God means to lift high the name of God. But the irony and the duplicity in this is that Nebuchadnezzar constantly failed to honor God with his life. He's all talk. So number one, sin is a rebellion against God. Number two, sin is idolatry. If you want to understand sin, you have to know that at its core, sin is idolatrous. It means that you have put something in your life above the one true God It's that simple. To worship something, when we say, hey, would you stand and worship? I want you to understand even the terms that we use within our Christian vernacular. To worship something is to ascribe worth to it. It means to give your attention, your passion, your time, and your pursuit and priority to something. And I can promise you ninth grader, and I can promise you senior, there is something in your life that is first in prominence. There is something in your life that is number one. 
And I could probably evaluate and discern for you what the number one thing in your life is just by looking at your search and scroll history. It's what you pay attention to. It's what you think about. It's what you dream about. It's where your energy goes. It could be athletics. It could be grades. It could be relationships. It could be sex. It could be your future. But whenever we take a good thing and we make that good thing an ultimate thing, we have created an idol in our life. Do you want to know if you're an idolater? Then ask this question. Is there something in my life that takes central place in my heart more than God? And when we take God off the throne of our lives and put something else there, we are no longer living for God but worshiping something else altogether. Nebuchadnezzar is an example for us because here in chapter four, I want you to see what happens. Nebuchadnezzar In verse one, all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. He starts off so good, but then he's gonna have a dream where his downfall is going to be predicted. And in verses four through 18, this dream is going to be revelatory of the massive, massive issue he has in his life. He is an idolater. He set up idols before, and Calvin used to say that our hearts are idol factories, meaning that if you're not worshiping God, you are worshiping something. There will always be something in your life that you are glorifying. Nebuchadnezzar's idols were obvious, but ours are more subtle. But what's an idol? It's anything in your life that takes prominence over God. But Daniel has, or Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in chapter four, and it reveals that Nebuchadnezzar is a man who is proud, pride. We use the word pride a lot in our contemporary culture. But pride is the thought in living that you don't think you really need God. Pride is when you distrust God. It's when you as God's creature no longer think you need your creator. Perhaps there is no greater expression or exemplification of pride in our culture today than our own attempts at self-sufficiency meaning that we can live this life on our own. I don't need the wisdom of my parents. I can Google my question. I don't need the experience of my teachers. I can YouTube that. And in 15 years, I'm not gonna need to know anything because I'll be able to chat, GPT, everything. I can do anything I want because you don't need anyone or anything because you yourself are an autonomous, independent creature and everyone else is irrelevant to you. And this is the world that we're curating for the next generation. The only person that matters and the only person I need is me, myself, and I. And that is the epitome of pride. And here is Nebuchadnezzar elevating himself saying, yeah, God is the God of gods, but man, oh man, I'm the king of kings. This is the way the Bible begins with God's two first two image bearers, Adam and Eve. They were given a great garden. They were given the the command to eat of any of the trees of the garden except for one. They fellowshiped with God. They worshiped God. They reaped the benefits of his goodness and kindness. But one of the first things that the serpent does in Genesis 3 and the story of our earliest ancestors is that the serpent comes and casts doubt upon the goodness of God and he begins to get them to think that they don't really need God at all. The earliest sin spawned out of this thinking, I don't need God. He needs me. I don't need to listen to God. He needs to listen to me. That's what pride is. You are made to glorify God, but yet so often we glorify ourselves and the other gods and idols that we've elevated in our life. I want you to see one of the definitions of pride. It's in Daniel 4.30. We'll start in verse 28, Daniel 4.28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream. Daniel beseeches him in verse 27, Let your sin go. And we see that even though he has been begged and pleaded with to let go of his sin, Nebuchadnezzar clutches his sin. He won't let go of the pride in his life. Maybe you're familiar with even how some of the the tribal people in the jungle used to hunt monkeys. They used to put peanut butter inside of a jar And the monkey would reach their hand inside of a mason jar, grab the peanut butter, 
But when their fist was closed, it was too large to pull it back out of the mason jar. So they can reach their hand in the mason jar like this. But once they grab what they have been seeking, the closed fist disables them from removing their hand. And they'll sit there like this for hours while the hunters will come up and bash them with the head. They won't let go of what they love and it cost them their life. And Nebuchadnezzar won't let go of his sin. He won't let go of his pride. Daniel said, let go of your sins. And here he is in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, you saw this in the video. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of, watch this, my majesty. This man knew about God. He was just too blinded by his own pride to truly believe he needed God. He had power, riches, might, recognition. There was nothing in the realm of this world that he did not have access to, but he was blinded by pride. This is what it does in your own life. It blinds you from thinking rationally. Pride makes you delusional. It drives you mad. You can't see life and you can't see yourself for who you truly are. You think you don't need God, but the reality is God doesn't need to take your life. God just needs to stop giving you life because every single breath in your lungs is from God. And yet you think you can live your life without him, but Acts 17 says, in him we move and breathe and have our being. Everyone take a deep breath in if you go like, that's a gift from God. You think that you are your own independent, autonomous creature. And God says, I sustain you by my power. I want to just look at a couple manifestations of pride. Nebuchadnezzar is so proud. Pride is blinding and causes us to seek satisfaction in the things that God has made, but without God himself. This is just one of the definitions of pride in our culture. Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And watch this. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Pride causes us to worship things that are created rather than the creator. And I want you to understand something. Because of our pride, our entire identity is thrown off. We no longer see ourselves as God's creatures and as God's children, but as these individual beings. And in doing so, our identity is no longer rooted in who God is as our heavenly father, but our cultural identity is now rooted in our sexual expression and sexual participation. If you want to understand who someone is today, you need to understand who they are in regards to their sexuality. Because we now live in a world where you get to define who you are. But when it comes to the scripture, and you need to understand this, and I say this with much love, your identity is not determined by who you think you are. It's determined by who God says you are in his word. But in regards to even the gift of sex, culturally, because of pride, we no longer steward it as a gift, but we become consumers of sex and it is the greatest of our cultural idols. One of the Greek words for pride is tufo, and it literally means to envelop with smoke. That when someone is proud, it means they're wrapped up in a thick veil and cloud of smoke. They can't see things right. And this is what pride does. It no longer allows us to see anything clearly. We live our life as if we are in some massive haze in this regard, even in regards to sin and pride and its blinding nature in our life, pornography is consuming the lives of so many individuals today and prevents them from seeing that you are in eternal danger. 
Statistically, some 85% of you look at pornography on a regular basis. And here's what pride does. It causes us to no longer see individuals as those who are made in the image of God, but as objects that we consume to gratify our own satisfaction. Pride destroys. And it's destroying you because at the root of all sexual sin is not sexual drive. It's the pride that thinks I get to do what I want when I want because I want to be satisfied. In our pride, we think we can satisfy our souls apart from God. But the more we attempt to do so with sex or with anything else for that matter, the more we realize that this life is exhausting, draining, depleting, life-sucking, and one day, damning. The more we consume of the cultural idols, the more empty we feel. You have to understand something. Look at me for a moment. Your soul has a groove. It has a groove that has been hardwired in you from eternity that longs to return back to your Edenic state. Meaning you long for what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden when their souls were fully satisfied in God. You have a inborn hunger for soul satisfaction and every day you wake up, you are hungry. My friend Harry always uses the line, hungry people eat. And your soul was made to be satisfied. And if it's not satisfied in God, it's going to be satisfied in the things of the world. But instead of satisfying our hearts and our souls and fellowship with our creator, we go about trying to fill our lives with distortions of his gifts to us. So we no longer see sex as something beautiful that God has made for marriage, but something that we get to do because that's where our identity lies. And because of our pride, we don't see sin for what it is. Can I just tell you this, 15-year-old? The longer you live in sin, the more comfortable you are going to be with your sin. And the harder it is for you to be able to recognize that you need deliverance from it. Because sin is blinding and it hardens you more and more and more to the truth. You no longer even realize you're licking the keen edge of a blade. You don't even begin to care anymore. Maybe you used to feel the sting of your conscience, but over time, it just gets dulled. The longer you run from God, the more indifferent to God and more attracted to darkness you will become. Pride is at the root of the way you see your body in a cultural sense. Your culture tells you that you live in a world where you get to say, my body, my choice. The Bible says your body belongs to God. Why? Because he made your body. But when you see your body as something you possess as an autonomous being outside of the creator, then you no longer give glory to the one who made you. If you're a Christian, and I don't suggest all of you are Christians, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit if you're in Christ. And so the question is in 1 Corinthians, can you imagine Jesus Christ shacking up with a prostitute? No, right? But if you're a Christian, it says Jesus now resides within you, and it's the same thing as if Jesus himself was looking at a screen of pornography when you who are claimed to be a Christian view something that he came to die for. Because your body is not just your body. Your body is a temple of God's Holy Spirit. But our pride confuses us. It blinds us. It envelops us with smoke. Maybe as I'm talking about pride, you say, not me. But I must tell you about one of the most damaging forms of pride in all of human history. And that is self-righteousness. The scariest form of pride are the people that say amen to everything I just previously said. 
and in the heart of hearts, they think they're earning their way to God. Perhaps there's no person in this room further from God than the person that knows the answers, knows the truths, and thinks that they deserve the love of God because they've stayed away from the big sins. Maybe you're like the Pharisee in Luke 18 that says, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people. But there are many people in here today that are more lost in the church than the prodigal who is lost in the far country. Because you must understand that it's not just your badness that separates you from God. It's the goodness you perform thinking that you are earning the favor of God because of who you are. Gold star, Jessica. I can tell you, the greatest barrier to the gospel is your own self-righteousness. The idea that you're not really that bad and Jesus is a savior for serious sinners and I mean, of course, I'm only human. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of course. I'm, I'm not perfect. But I mean, come on. I'm not her. The Bible says that thinking is the most dangerous type of thinking and that person is the furthest person from God. Sin isn't just a breaking of the rules It is also the attempt to establish yourself as your own savior. The externally moral young man is just as lost, if not even more lost, than the internally immoral man. If not even more so, because you will never be found in Christ until you realize you are totally, totally, totally lost without him. Furthermore, Yesterday, I did a Q&A, and someone was asking me about assurance of salvation. And it's a great question. You will never, ever have assurance of your salvation as long as you are trying to earn your salvation. Because the proof of that you're saved, if it's constantly looking at who you are and trying to earn your way to God, you'll never actually have confidence in it. Because my life is riddled with sin. My life It's riddled with failure. So if I'm looking in the mirror to try to establish my own confidence, I'll never have it. Yes, there's fruit that God grants to those who are truly saved. But if you're looking to your own life to give you confidence in your standing before God, and you base your confidence on your performance and not on Jesus' righteousness, Jesus looks at you through his word and says, my friend... You are building your house on sinking sand. Now, if you want to guarantee that the ruler of heaven and earth will be opposed to you, you just have to hold on to your pride. The pride that says, I want what I want. I love my sin. And the pride that says, I'm really not that bad at all. There's a prerequisite for salvation. There's only one type of person in heaven. Absolute humility. Brokenness over their sin. And if you want to guarantee that God will be opposed to you, stay in your pride and watch this in Daniel 4, 31. Nebuchadnezzar had said, is this not the great Babylon 430, which I have built by my majesty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, this kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. 
This is just a small demonstration of God's staunch opposition to pride. Pride ends in destruction, and here in this life, it ended for Nebuchadnezzar in destruction. He is now irrational, and there's this picture that sin has driven him absolute bonkers. He can no longer see left from right, up or down. He is delusional. But this problem with pride is not just something that Nebuchadnezzar faces. It's something that every single one of us faces. And if you're living in your own pride, the Bible says God is opposed to the proud. You understand that? That God right now, Hebrews says, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, come on. He tells waves in Job 38, thus far you shall come and no further. God asked Job the question, hey Job, does lightning tap you on the shoulder and tell you or ask you, where should we strike God? I mean, I love that. And that God that upholds the universe gives you every single breath in your lungs, it says, listen here, is opposed to the proud. I don't want to be a proud person. And then it says he gives grace to the humble. And tracing Nebuchadnezzar's story, we have looked at our own. And we've looked at the expression of sin in his life. But I want to just talk to you for a moment about the nature of sin. Sin is not just what we do, it's who we are. It's not just what we do, it's who we are. It says in Ephesians 2 that we are born dead in our sin. It says in Psalm 51, 5 that we are conceived in iniquity. Do you know what that means? It means that many churches today teach that man is born generally morally upright and then their culture and their upbringing distorts them so that they become even more corrupt. But what the Bible says is that you are born absolutely dead and the dead cannot raise themselves you have not fallen off of the house and broken your leg. You have fallen off of the Sears Tower and are flat line dead. It says you are by nature a child of wrath, meaning that I want you to understand this with love. There are only two types of people. There are those who are children of God and there are those who are enemies of God. And you are either one or the other, a child of God or an enemy of God and dead in your sin. I like, I, we, I've, Use the story of Princess Bride before that when Prince Wesley dies, he goes to see Miracle Max. And Miracle Max says, your friend's not dead. He's only mostly dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And I think this is how we view our spiritual condition, that we may need God to maybe defibrillate a living creature back to full strength. But what the Bible says is he needs to resurrect a dead corpse because the dead can do absolutely nothing to please God. Sin is who you are. James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point is guilty of them all. Can I just talk to you about the consequences of sin for a moment? Sin is punished, and it must be punished by a just judge. Because of our sin, something tragic has happened to you, and something as tragic has happened to mankind. The great tragedy of what happens in your Bible is that man who was made to rush into the presence of God is now, because of their sin, fleeing and hiding from God. Adam and Eve were there to live quorum Deo, which means before the face of, to the glory of God. And in the moment of their sin, they recognize their nakedness and they hide from God and cover their bodies with leaves and figs. They're running from the one who gives them life. And they're separated from him. And this is the world we now live in. The reason our world is broken is because it's full of broken people who are already separated from God in their sin. Every single one of you outside of Christ is separated from God right now. And the rest of the Bible is not a story about people pursuing God. It's a story about how God pursues and shows grace and mercy to those who reject him. But the consequence of sin is, watch this, and you need to understand this. The consequences of sin is not just that you're separated from God in this life, but that you're separated from God in the next life for all of eternity in hell. 
I hear some people today, I understand it's kind of like a, it's just acceptable now. I heard some people saying, what the hell, right? We say that, and I'm being crass. Just, I've heard it said like, you know, 15 times a day. We use the term hell a lot. But I want you to understand what it is. Because if you understood what hell is, I don't think you'd joke about it. I remember reading the book Love Wins by Rob Bell when it was published in 2011. The thrust of the book is that God's love ultimately trumps his justice. Rob Bell says that ultimately God's love wins. He doesn't ever send people to hell. And sadly, this idea is communicated in our cultural context. But even if you've grown up hearing that God doesn't judge sinners, or you say things like, I don't want to believe in a God that judges sinners, my friend, I tell you with great care and compassion, that idea melts in the plain reading of the revelation of God himself in his word. Can I tell you this, pastor? Can I tell you this, counselor? Can I tell you this, friend? The most unloving thing you could ever tell anyone is that God does not judge sinners. You say, well, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. Well, it's not sin that's punished forever in hell. It's sinners. It's those who live their sin, in their sin in such a way where they reject God and turn their back on him. Because remember, God is the definition of goodness and holiness and purity and beauty. And those who have been polluted with sin cannot enter his holy presence. Today, a number of preachers have become apologetic regarding the wrath of God, if not altogether silent. In fact, I remember some years back, pastors said, why do you even have to say hell? Why can't you just say separated from God? It's because an unbeliever is already separated from God. You're already living outside of his will for your life. But hell is something else altogether. And to downplay the reality of an eternal fiery hell is to downplay and taint his amazing love that saves you from it. Whatever your view of God is, it is an inadequate view of God if it does not include a category for a God who is just and wrathful towards sin. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, right? But those who don't understand the consequences of their sin and what they are facing will never call out on God's kindness because they never think they deserve it or need it in the first place. They don't need his kindness. In the New Testament, there are 162 references alone which warn people of hell. Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, flee from the wrath to come. 70 of the 162 references to hell in the New Testament are ushered by Jesus' own mouth. But red-letter Bibles give us the impression that the entirety of Scripture is less inspired than what Jesus said. And Jesus says, and he, if he showed up at Hume Lake, he would say, young man, young woman, God does love you. And because he loves you, he tells you to flee from the wrath and consequences of your sin. People always ask me, why do you think so many students leave the church at 18? I'll tell you why so many students leave the church at 18. It's because people have been trying to lure them into endless pizza parties and endless comfortability, trying to compete with the culture with cool factors when never telling students, you don't understand. You need a savior from your sin. I don't know why on earth you'd go to church if it was merely just for to, to, to be a part of something. You need a community because you have been saved by God from your sin. And the, most, the, the surest way of, of getting people to be disinterested in the things of God is when you don't declare the full counsel of God, that you need him to be your savior. You'll never think grace is amazing if you think it's your birthright. I, I just fear for you guys in some ways. Because if the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God towards your sin is true, then it is the most important thing in your life right now. Far more than any political, academic, athletic, or relational thing going on in your life. You need to know where you stand with the holy God. I'm serious. And don't let the night 
cause this sting of maybe the conscience, your conscience that you feel right now to go, ah, it was just, I just felt something for a moment. You need to settle in your own life tonight. Have you been saved from the wrath of God? We're gonna talk about the gospel tomorrow, but the reason the gospel is amazing is because what Jesus does on the cross is bear the full measure of the wrath of God for those who come to him. Why did Jesus have to die? Ask yourself this question. Why did Jesus have to die? He died so that on the cross, he would reap the wrath of God towards your sin. The cross is a picture not just of the love of God. It's the picture of God's justice and God's holy wrath. Look at me for a moment. You do not love your friend if you see them drinking poison and turn your back. And the most unloving thing I can do, you know, you understand from like a being a cool speaker perspective, the cool thing is to make everyone revel in the good times. The hardest thing I can do, but the thing that truly is born out of the most love for you is to tell you this reality. If you're a pastor's kid or a sex addict, you have a poison that goes into the depths of your soul and it's who you are by nature and that is a sinner. A dog is a dog not because he barks. He barks because he's a dog. And you sin because you are a sinner at your very core and there's two just main responses to sin that you must have before you're even ready to cry out for a savior and let me just give them to you as we land the plane number one you need to be broken over your sin can i ask you this question maybe you've memorized the romans road and you memorized that all have sinned can i ask you this have you ever, ever, ever stood before God and went, I am a sinner. I'm the sinner. I deserve the wrath of God. I need a savior from my sin because I cannot earn my way to you. Have you ever been broken over it? I mean, it sounds so simple, but the prerequisite for genuine repentance is brokenness. And secondly, and this is maybe culturally unacceptable. Have you ever been struck with a healthy fear of God if you're an unbeliever? All believers, there's two different types of fearing God. One is the fear of God as his child where you look up at him in awe. But can I just tell you this? And this is what churches somehow stay away from. There should be a healthy tear in your life if you continue to reject God and choose your own sin and choose your own pride rather than turning to God. I can just tell you, and I could cry, and I can count on one hand the amount of times I've cried in my life. I can't think of anything more terrifying than living another night with my soul in jeopardy with my eternal home unsure because of my sin. If you have friends that don't know God, I, I, to love them is to plead with them to be reconciled to God. God has been so patient with you because he is just and he does exercise wrath, but watch this and we'll pick it up tomorrow as we look to the love of God. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some have understood slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. The only reason you are alive right now is because God is slow in exercising his justice because he has no delight in the punishment of the wicked. 
That's who he is as a just judge. But what God delights in is in saving lost sinners. And can I just encourage you, talk to your counselor tonight. Tomorrow we'll talk to the gospel. There is nothing more important than having a savior from your sin. Because if you stand before God and you're dressed in your own attempts at righteousness, he'll say, I never knew you. But if you believe in your heart and who Jesus is and what he's done for you on the cross and in the resurrection, he'll say, welcome home, my son, my daughter. I want that for you. Let's pray. God, we love you. And I'm so thankful for these students. Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their sin. God, I pray that you would, through the light of your own righteousness, clear out the fog and smoke of pride that blinds us from seeing our own condition in light of who our holy God is. Lord, I pray even for the people that even laugh and smirk at the idea of sin. What a dangerous place to be. Lord, I pray for those who your Holy Spirit is working upon their hearts even now, not because of something I've said, but because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces even the most calloused of hearts. And so God, would you cause them to cry out for a savior in Jesus Christ because we will never long for the remedy until we understand the diagnosis. And the diagnosis of every human heart is this. We are dead in our sin, children of wrath, and we desperately need a savior. Lord, I love you, and I'm so grateful that you love me. I pray this in your name, and all God's people said.